Hello, and welcome to another episode of Gaming Couch, where we sit back and talk about video games, board games, card games, and the like. So pull up a chair, put your feet up, let's have a good time. Oh boy, sorry. I was stretching right when that was happening. Okay, we're good. Welcome back, everyone. You know, it's a beautiful, mostly beautiful day out. A little too sunny for me, but then again, I sit inside a lot, so I'm used to the darkness. But I hope you all are enjoying this month of September as we're rolling into October and getting into fall and hopefully getting away from more of the heat and getting a little crispier out. Right, I'm not talking crisper. Wow. I'm not talking like make it winter just yet, but maybe like a small coat something you need for the day. Good breeze. Let the leaves change colors. Yeah, it's that time of year. So I'm eager for that kind of stuff. Now, what's the plan for today? Well, the plan for today is to talk about a game I've yet to even play. Why? Because I'm a mad lad. Also, because the theme of the game is giant mech combat, and I like me some giant mechs. Now, ironically, as much as I like giant mechs, I'm not a fan of movies or shows that revolve around giant mech combat. Don't ask. I don't like what... Like, it's not that I don't like it, but I'm not as much of a fan of watching the giant mech combat as I am of being a part of it. So games that involve giant mech combat... I'm just a fanboy over so much. Like, I've played stuff like MechWarrior Online, like other cheap slash free-to-play kind of games from, like, Steam and other things on the PC. And even if they're not polished, I really enjoy them so much. And, like, I've looked at different board games like Scythe. I haven't gotten it yet, but I really want to get it because there's mechs in it. And it has kind of, like, a steampunk-esque theme behind it, like World War II style. So, the other week talking to a buddy of mine from college, and he had the uh, the honor of playing this beta game called Lancer, all right? It's in the pre-release phases right now. You actually can get access to the PDF, stuff like that. I'll post links to uh, Massive Press's website. They have, like, all the information there. And he told me about it, and he starts the conversation off like, yeah, I was trying out this new RPG, and it has mech combat in it. And I'm like, so when are we playing? I didn't even like, let him finish his thought. I was immediately sold. Like He said, it's an RPG with mechs. I'm immediately buying it in. Immediately. Lancer is a unique RPG. Looking through the book, all right, the core rule book, it is like 580 pages. Because everything's there. It's very lore heavy in terms of a game. Like Everything from background information to character design talents to the mechs and their weapons there is flavor for everything so if you ever played like magic or other card games that have flavor text on every card that's kind of what this is everything has some sort of flavor text give it some sort of background i think that's great if you're a very big lore heavy person it's great for you for me the lore is okay i haven't looked into it too much because i want to get more to playing the game and i figured as we play the game the lore will kind of come with it over time. So you, you go through the lore if you want, and then you kind of get to the meat and potatoes, the actual way the game is played. Now, I'm going to be getting to some rankings in a little bit, but I figured some background knowledge on this game couldn't hurt, so you can kind of understand where I'm going with these rankings I'm doing today. So in Lancer, it's not roll the die for your character. It's all a point and buy system, which I really like. I know some people have done D&D that way, I've always done a roll of the dice. I like kind of D&D with that roll of the dice to see just how odd your character can be, and you can build your character around those oddities. But here, I do like that change of pace. I do like taking a step back from the rolls and just saying, here's like your base. Every character starts with the same base stats. And then from there, you pick and choose what you want to modify. So it's like you get two weapons, uh, an armor, and three sets of gear. All right. As you make, as when you make a character, there's no money involved, no dice. You pick. So if you want to pick a stealth hard suit with a sword and a pistol for your character, go ahead. If you want to be like me, I'm playing an explosive loving German. So I got a hard suit with a missile launcher. All right, my character has, it, and then I'm carrying a bunch of grenades and some C4. Sure, just go right ahead. Like there's there's nothing saying you can't do that because you're not limited by stats or anything like that. You have the same ability as everyone else. And you have access to the same stuff as everyone else. And then from there, to also make your character unique, 
you have the whole background and triggers section. Triggers are more like skills, all right? And they trigger in certain situations. So four of my, my four triggers to start with, I have show off, stay cool, create invent, and blow something up. I like explosions. And what that is, is like D&D, hey, I want to search the room for something, all right? Roll perception to see what you see around you, you know? Or I want to follow those tracks, okay? Roll a survival or nature. Like the GM kind of calls for certain situations for a skill to be made. Same thing with triggers. The names are more creative. Like I said, like stay cool. It's not a charisma check. It's a how well you do under pressure. What pressure that is gets changed, you know, depending on the GM and depending on the situation. But I, like, I kind of like the names. Like I said, blow something up. I saw that. I'm like, I'm immediately getting that. So I have this plus two trigger to blow something up. And then there's your backgrounds. You can pick kind of a pre-made background that, again, has some flavor behind it saying, like, what this background exactly entails. And it comes with a pre-package of four starting triggers because every pilot starts with four triggers at level zero. So you can do that, and you can just get your triggers from there and at least have a foundation for your backstory and then just modify it from there. Or you can do what we're doing and just say, fuck it, pick whatever four triggers you want and explain why. Like, you make up your own backstory. So my character was kind of a nut job when he was a little bit younger, you know, he never met his father, single mother, the youngest of four sons kind of thing. So he got into a lot of mischief. We liked firecracker and stuff like that. His brothers went off to war. Two of them got killed. So as he grew up, you know, mom didn't want him going to war. So when he decided to go to school for pyrotechnics and demolitions, he got a job as a miner. And it worked for a while because he got to just blow a bunch of things up, like drill deep enough into the rock. And then they're going to recently the drill's having a hard time getting through. So he's like, okay, cool. Let's go in there and excavate the area with explosives or destroy the asteroids and an asteroid belt to clear an area out for safe travel, like things like that. And after a while, I'd said, like, you know, he got bored because there's only so much you can do with blowing up rocks. You know, it's kind of like the same thing over and over again. It gets bland for a while. So he decided to join up with, you know, the military or a private organization. Like, the GM hasn't told us the backstory stuff yet, like the reasoning why we are in these giant mechs. But I like that. I just like that your character their backstory really impacts who they are in terms of their stats. Because, again, D&D, you can roll it and then meld some sort of character flaw or character strength into why you have these different stats, though you're still limited by those die rolls. So I play that every now and then, and I'll play Lancer. And then from there, you got your character, and then you have your mech. And this is what's really important. The character creation, in terms of like who you are, is very simple, because it's just you pick your triggers and you pick some gear, and that's it. Because everything comes down to the mechs you get. Everyone starts with the same mech, and then after a while, every time you level up, which happens after a scene, which we'll get to in just a second, you get a new license. And essentially your license is like leveling up points, so you can pick various licenses from different companies. And depending on how many licenses you have with certain mechs from certain companies, you'll get access to more equipment, some like more weapons, more add-ons, more mods, more systems, etc., 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 and eventually different mechs so the customization is really big because a mech can have mods put on its weapons it can have system upgrades you can install with ais you can get new weapons there's a lot of different things like they're kind of like another character and instead of just being equipment like i have armor i have a weapon i have skills it translates instead like skills it's systems instead of you know it's weapons and weapons but there's also weapon mods instead of like you know, magical enchantments that you get in D&D, and all that kind of stuff. And how your pilot synergizes with your mech is up to you. Because there's one thing I forgot to mention with your character, there's also your talents. You pick three talents at the start, and there's a, a list of talents, not an incredibly long list, but a decent size amount of talents, and then each talent has three rankings. So you start with three talents at rank one, and then as you level up, you can either pick new talents or upgrade the rank of each talent, getting additional effects. So with my explosive-loving character, I decided to go with talents that are great with siege stuff. So, like, I have a talent that's siege specialist. I can actually target cover to blow it up. Instead of just, it might get caught in the blast or something like that, I can actually say, no, that cover, fuck that cover, we're going to blow it up and hit the guy behind it, and then the cover is removed. Works very well when you want to play a guy in the background with an RPG. Synergizes very well. But there's also other things that go with modifying systems, hitting the tech melee combat there's even like leadership and charismatic type talents 
and all of those synergize with your character and then with your mech because each mech then fulfills a role because there's no class system like you don't pick to be a fighter or you don't pick to do this or pick to do that you kind of pick what mech you want and mechs fill out certain roles like striker doing the damage the dps controller kind of speaks for itself try to control the battlefield support you're helping others either by giving them buffs or debuffing the enemy various things like that there's artillery which blow shit up and lay down some heavy fire and then there's defender like your tank really good at taking damage or negating damage to your allies various things like that so you could build a mech that is a defender yes you could there are a few mechs that fulfill multiple roles, like a controller striker. But again, it's not just the mech. It's the stuff that comes with the mech. Because each mech has three licenses that comes with it. So it's like rank one, rank two, rank three, just like talents. And you could get three licenses with a certain mech, but never use the mech. Just take the gear that it gets with the license and then put that to something else. So like you could get some gear from a support mech. And then add that to your actual striker mech that you've built. And the next thing you know, your striker mech is able to support its other allies up front while still, into, while still doing a lot of damage. And sometimes those support systems will actually help it do more damage or reload its weapons faster, stuff like that. So doing those kind of tweaks, think of it like the archetypes of D&D with the class system, but like multiple archetypes. Since there's no money, it's just you make what you want over time. If you built a mech and you're not really liking it, well, before you go into the next mission, you can just take what license you have available and build something else. Just redo your mech with something else with the license you have at hand. So you're always able to change it. So it's not not so much locked in. You can just modify as you go forward. It might harm you a little bit for a small time because if you have talents that deal very well with doing long-range damage, and then you decide to rebuild a mech that is a support melee, well, those long-range seed spells just sounds are completely useless to you, but it, it's you do what you gotta do, and then you can still have some siege weapons if you want on hand. So it's pretty cool. Like, that flexibility is really cool. And then in terms of actually playing the game, they actually split it between what they call narrative play and scenes, which is your mech combat. So narrative play is more like your pilot, like when you're at HQ or you're walking around a city or whatever the setting is, it's more like the role-playing. And since stats aren't really a big thing, unless you have a trigger that comes into play or your background comes into play, because your GM or yourself can actually say, hey, my background would help me here or my background would be a harm to me here and could modify the roles just by making that call. Like it's not a strict rule, it just says play it by ear. So besides getting some modifications on your background or maybe having like you know, a leadership-type trigger. Role-playing is just exactly that. You're just talking. The dice barely determine anything in that regard, which is pretty cool. So you can spend that time to just get to know people, talk to others, talk to NPCs, get some lore, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's the narrative piece. The game focuses on the narrative there. And then we get to the actual scenes, the missions. That's when things get crazy. For the most part, scenes and missions involve your mech, and that's where the mech combat comes into play. You can do combat as your pilot if you really want, or if the GM sets up a mission that way, it can happen. But a majority of the fighting is the mechs. That's where all of your talents come to. Your, your talents only affect your mech. Most of your weapons and your abilities are on your mech. So you do a mission, and you could just do one mission, that's that, or it could be like a string of missions because you have a rest repair phase, just like a short rest in D&D where it says, okay, you have an hour of downtime. You can repair your mech, to heal up some of the damage, resupply, things like this, things like that, and even end effects, because there are certain, like, most of the effects don't just end. You actually have to do something to end it. So you know how, like, in D&D, the stun effect will just end after one turn, or it lasts for a minute, and you just make a save every turn? In this, it's, no, that if, unless, like, a weapon specifically says it, that effect just stays until you spend actions or spend a turn doing something about it. And if you don't, it goes into your rest phase, and you have to spend time during your rest to get rid of the effect. So things are kind of permanent, and even mech damage. Like, the mechs don't have a lot of health, because if I remember correctly, when I was going through the rules, every time you lose all your HP, so you have, like, 15 HP in your mech, when you run out of HP, it's not game over. It's instead you lose structure. So you take a point of structure damage, and then that could 
damage weapons, shut down your systems, do like a number of different things. And on top of that, it could lead to a heat buildup because if you get too much heat building up in your reactor, it could cause your mech to shut down from overheating or it could cause a meltdown and the thing blows up. So there's all these different things come into play with your mech that you have to monitor as a pilot and make sure you're interacting with your teammates because, again, if you have a support mech who's really good at cooling off systems and supporting allies, maybe that's all that guy's doing during combat. He's running around and just ensuring no one's overheating because some weapons do heat damage and your mech could blow up quicker than you expect. So that's awesome. Like, I just love the idea of mech combat and then with... How they word it. It, it, honestly, it comes down to the way, that's partially why I like Android Netrunner, the way things are worded and the lingo is great. So in this, yeah, you have like the shredded ability, immobilized, stunned, burn damage, heat damage. You know, you can translate that into other words to fit like more standard swords and sorceries. Like shredded could just be vulnerable or weakened, you know? Heat damage could be exhaustion. Burn is burn, like... It's cool. I, I like it. I like that little attention to detail, in a way. So about the ranking for today? I just gave you a, a quick, very quick rundown of the rules. That does not cover everything. There's a hell of a lot more to it. Hell, even the weapons themselves have a lot of crazy rules at times. It's like, is it an ordnance weapon? Is it a loading weapon? Does it have arching? Is it a blast or is it a line? Because each weapon has certain targetings. It's crazy, like area effects. Sorry, like what it affects. We're not going to get to all that right away. Just for now, the listing. Well, the name of the game is Mech Combat. Most of the book is dedicated to the mechs. All right? Which mech is which? What abilities it has? Things like that. So the listing, I'm actually going to look at just like a top, you know, the top five, like a personal list of mechs that I think are the best in the game for different reasons. And part of the reason why I wanted to give kind of the rules overview Every mech, being unique, has certain abilities that are unique to just it, and also those licenses that come with it, what gear can come along. So when I list a mech in its ranking, I'm not looking at just the mech itself. I'm looking at kind of like a little bit like lore stuff, because again, there's some lore stuff behind it for every mech and the weapons. I'm looking at the mech itself, like the stats and its unique abilities, because every mech comes with unique traits and a unique system to it that only that mech has access to. So they have, like, core powers. And this mech has this core power. No one else can get it. You have to have this mech for this power. So I'm looking at that, and then I'm looking at everything else that comes with it. The additional modifications, the additional systems, the additional weapons that you can get with the license dedicated to this mech. So they're not unique to the mech. You just get them, and then you can use them with any mech you want. So looking at all that, looking at all that kind of stuff to determine where the mech would fall in the ranking. All right, so we'll start at the bottom, work our way up to number one at the top, and just do a little talking on the way there. And when I'm done, if you kind of like, you're liking what I'm hearing, like I said, I'm going to have a link posted to Massive Press's website so you can check it out. They have download links there. You can pre-order the book. It's coming out soon. It's going to be amazing. So let's just, you know, jump right into it. So starting at the bottom at number five, and the bottom is never bad all right it's just the lowest of a top five list and honestly i think this go this deserves like the most basic mech in a good way the everest right the gms everest mech the reason why this mech is so simple and basic it's the first mech you get all right unless you do a game that you start at like level two or level three therefore you'd already have licenses you start at level zero with not a single license to your name. And of course, companies don't want to give out their stuff unless you have proof that you're capable. Like That's what your licenses are for. So the Everest, coming from GMS, is just a general mech. GMS is really big on just it's always like general arms, general equipment, things like that. It's actually, it stands for, if I scroll up, GMS, where is your name? General Massive Systems. So they just kind of give things out to beginners. Gear, core bonuses and systems, mech frames, all that stuff. So Everest, you will start with. And in terms of, like, stats for a mech, it's not terrible. Honestly, it's it's a substantial mech. Like you could use it for quite a few levels if you really wanted to. 
its big hindrance is having no armor. So if it takes any damage, it takes the full damage. And at HP 10, a lot of weapons, on average, like main weapons, do about a D6 damage. So two hits, you could be down. So it's not very tanky, but again, it's your starting mech and it works. It's a very simple mech. And because of how simple it is, it's very versatile in what you can do with it. And its traits and core bonuses are also very versatile. So instead of it being fulfilling like a specific role, like striker or support or whatever, it's simply just you can get bonus actions. The very first turn the Everest takes in any combat scene, it can take an extra quick action as a free action. It just it can attack again or something else. Like quick action can do a number of things. You just get that bonus action at the start of every combat. That's pretty cool. And then it's one-time use power. This turn only, you can make an additional full action as a free action or two quick actions. And again, those come in different things. Like full action can be firing two weapons, reloading, ending effects on you, doing certain tech things. Or you can do two quick actions, which gives you more options. So that's great. Because now you have such a simple mech, you can build it kind of how you want. Like, I mentioned that siege stuff, so I have talents that focus on siege combat. And with the variety of mounts it has, because every mech can only hold certain weapons with certain mount types, its three mounts, flexible, main, and heavy, essentially means it can carry any weapon combination in the game. Three mounts is great. It can have up to three or four weapons, depending on the weapons you pick, and they can fulfill a number of different roles. So I have a bunch of blast-heavy weapons, a Howitz cannon, RPG, and these missile racks that are like auxiliary, so I can have two of them on one mount. And it's all just blast damage. And this mech, because I can get additional actions, I can fire more missiles, or I can attack and then reload in the same turn. Like, you get a couple different things. And system points, which you use to modify your mech, essentially, like adding additional systems, six points. Again, average. Some mechs have less, a few mechs have more. So with six, you can do, like, three or four mods, depending on how many system points they need. Again, tweaking the Everest exactly how you want it. And all the other stuff that comes with GMS, both the weapon list, the chassis mods, and everything else, since anyone can use them, it covers a little bit of everything. Getting extra limbs, custom paint jobs, because you could do that, a stable structure, which gives you additional resistances. You can get basic AIs, shields, flight systems, like... It's all a little bit of everything, and with it, you can then just modify a mech a little bit further. Like, if you have a support mech, give it a flight system so it can just move around the battlefield a little bit easier and avoid difficult terrain. Sure, you get it from GMS, it's always there. So I I gotta tip my hat to the Everest. It's a good starting mech, and with how versatile it is, no two Everest will ever be the same. So show it a little bit of love, you know, that they say... The Everest might not be the most specialized chassis in the galaxy, but it's the backbone of the galaxy. Every pilot will pilot an Everest at some point in their life. Moving on to number four. All right, this is where we get into the, the fancy stuff. All right, the Everest was the backbone of everything. The Everest is where you start. So where could you go from there? Well, number four, I'm going to look at the SSC Swallowtail. It is a support mech, and it's a support sniper mech, all right? It's, it's a pretty cool combination. What it does is cloaking, which is great, so it can stay invisible, and then it's really good at doing a lock-on mechanic. So any mech can spend an action's turn to lock onto a target that it can see. And then doing that, well, you have additional accuracy for your next attacks because you've locked onto them. So what about the Swallowtail? Well, first off, you know how I mentioned that the Everest is decent and average, even though it has no armor, but has 10 HP? Well, the Swallowtail only has 6 HP and no armor. But with everything else, it has higher defenses, it has better sensors, so it can see further on its sensor range and doing tech stuff. It is quicker. And again, it has the ability to either be invisible or just be really good at hiding. So it's one of its standard traits is if it does move during its turn, it becomes invisible at the end of its turn, which is great. So you can essentially shoot or do a tech attack or support another mech, and as long as you didn't move from the spot you're at, you just become invisible. So you only become visible on your turn if you say so. As long as you can stay planted 
it's great. So it can be a great sniper mech for that reason. Or it can just sneak into enemy territory by staying hidden and using additional systems and then kind of hang out behind enemy lines waiting for its allies to catch up to it and then resupply and support them and then push forward. It also has this great sensor where whenever it inflicts lock-on, it causes the target to also become shredded. All right, now that, dealing extra damage and stuff like that, it's great because one, you're able to hit it easier because it's locked on. And two, if any of your allies attack that mech, they might not get the benefit of lock-on, but that enemy is currently shredded, so they're doing extra damage anyway. So it's a great little thing to throw on more damage. And then it has a pretty cool core system where you're able to just pretend that never happened. All right, it's a one-time use thing, all right? And once per round until the end of the current fight, as a reaction, when an allied character you can see is damaged by another character, you can roll an attack, and or roll a d6. And if you hit a certain value, the ally gains resistance to all damage from that attack, and then it can teleport and move away. It's all like it says it's a simula- simulation of what would have happened, so the mech takes less damage. And now it says end of current challenge. Essentially, it's you can have multiple challenges in a mission. So you only get, it might be once per round, but it's only once per round in like that combat or that challenge, whatever's going down. So you can use it wisely. If it's going to be a huge firefight, can't hurt to activate it. From there, all of its like fancy little things that it gets, well, it gets drones that it can actually shoot out. And drones can only shoot out into the sensor range. And its sensor range is 20. And to give you an idea of what that means, a lot of weapons have a range of 10 or less. There's only a few that go beyond 10. So you essentially can scan and see enemies further than they can shoot you. So you can drop a drone while you're safe, out of harm's way, and then that drone will actually give you a scan of the area so you can find out who's in there, they're no longer hiding, they can't benefit from cover, all that kind of stuff. And they have other things like marker light. You grant the lock-on condition to a certain target. However, before the start of your next turn, when another ally hits the guy you painted, you can say, that's an automatic crit. It's awesome. They get lock on and then boom, just automatic crit, which certain talents benefit from that. So it's a great, great little system to have. It has a few weapons it gets from its licenses. Nothing flashy at all because it's mostly just the support stuff. So the one thing you can get is a unique AI that actually creates a small little 3D map of the area you just scanned. And it stays there until you say otherwise. So with that, it's great when you combine it with like an artillery-style mech, because you could shoot that thing out far away from you and the artillery mech, scan an area to find out what's going on there, and then just pinpoint actually tell the artillery mech exactly what it is you need to do. Like, where exactly do you need to aim, who's the big target there, all that kind of stuff, so they know what to do. And I love that kind of communication, because in, like, in D&D, yes, each class fulfill, it fulfills a different role, but they can also kind of do a little bit of everything. Like, fighters can self-heal, and they can do a lot of damage. Clerics with certain spells can dish out a hell of a lot of damage while healing themselves. Here, though, an artillery mech, unless you give it some really special system, like you give it the Athena Protocol AI, which takes forever to get, because you need to, one, get the artillery mech, and then spend the license to get that, and also dedicate a lot of system power to it, you're going to need that other guy with you to, to scan that down. And it's I, I just love, like, the flavor behind it, all right? Because, yeah, in D&D, if you have a bunch of fighters, your healing's going to be shit. That's just without a doubt. If you don't have a caster, your healing's going to be shit. It just doesn't feel flavorful, though. Like, I don't, I don't feel as much flavor behind a bunch of fighters clad in armor compared to this giant mech fighting. So Swallow's Tail's ability to just paint targets, mark the area, and say, okay, guys, this, like... I'm not going to do much attacking, but I'm going to tell you exactly what's going down and pinpoint every single thing it is you want to do. Again, you can mix and max mech, mix and match like mechs together in terms of like what abilities they get because of the systems. But yeah, if I have an artillery mech, I'm not going to dedicate, you know, if I have seven system power, I'm not going to dedicate half of that, you know, three points to getting the class map. I'm going to let someone else do that because all the other senses I want, it's better accuracy, better range, more damage. Like, I need to fulfill this role as an artillery mech if I really want to. Um, 
give me a Swallowtail. Give me a Swallowtail any day, and I'll be ecstatic. Because I think their ability to stay hidden and light the world up saying here's everything is just a fantastic thing. I love, I love, love, love playing like an all-seeing eye style character. When I played League of Legends, one of my first characters I loved to play was Abathor. And part of it was because of his symbiote, which is actually a mech in this game. I didn't put it on the list, but the goblin. Think of Abathor's symbiote. That's what the goblin does. But I also liked it since I wasn't running on the battlefield and I had to kind of hop between allies to buff them. Just most of my chat was, okay, this guy's here, this guy's here. He was just like letting people know what's what because they're busy on their lanes. The Swallowtail feels like that. So the Swallowtail doesn't do a lot of damage outright. It just seems like that eye-in-the-sky kind of character that ensures the team is working together to the best it can based on the situation. Number three. Number three is going to be uh, an artillery. The reason why I bring that up is I love me some artillery. I do. Mech combat, my favorite is to just like that, blow shit up, blow shit up from far away. So my first character in this game is an artillery-based character. So I'm looking at some mechs that are artillery-like. So I'm looking at Death's Head, the SSC Death's Head. Now, the Death's Head itself isn't anything to really write home about. Its stats are pretty low. Again, it's artillery. So its stats are a little bit on the lower end. What does kind of sell me on it is its bonuses. So one of its traits, the Death's Head can reroll the very first range tech it makes per round. It must keep the second result, but if you only roll like a two, fuck it, re-roll it anyway. What's the worst that can happen? Like, there's no real critical failures in this game. And then perfected targeting, a plus one bonus to all range attacks. It's just plus one to your attack roll. If the weapon is ranged, plus one to the attack. It's amazing. And then kind of like a rogue from D&D, it's not so much a sneak attack, but it's a mark that it has marked for death. So it's more, actually, no, it's more like a ranger thing, not a rogue thing. It's more like a ranger thing. You target someone that is at a range 30. Excuse me, so up to 30 tiles away from you. And you say, I'ma kill that asshole. You concentrate on them. Now, what's important about this is you're immobilized and you can't take reactions. So you're essentially, you're going into, like, siege mode. But here's the cool part. While concentrating on that target, one, as long as they're not in cover from you, or within a range 5, you so up in your face, you can deal plus 3d6 bonus damage on a crit. Now again, there's your damage, and the Everest having only 10 health, 3d6, on top of everything else from the crit, you're going to blow up. So being marked for death is a real big deal. Now you might say, hey, it's a 3d6 on a crit, alright, and you're rolling a d20. Most of the time, when you roll a d20, if it's a nat 20, that's what's considered a crit. They do it differently in this. If the result is a 20 or higher, it's a crit. So after all your modifiers and everything else, if the die lands on 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, whatever, after you add your modifiers, then it is a crit. So then it's actually much easier to perform a critical hit in this game. Now, you don't have modifiers up the ass. Like, you know, you have characters like a fighter or a monk or a rogue will have like, plus fucking 8 to their attack by, like, level 4 or 5. In this game, getting those modifiers is harder. It takes time for you to have, like, a high, flat base to your roll. So what comes into play is accuracy and difficulty. These are modifiers that can be applied to just about anything. And when you have accuracy, you add 1d6 to your die roll, and it stacks. You have plus 3 accuracy... It's a d20 plus 3d6. That's your roll on top of any other modifiers. Difficulty is the opposite. You subtract that 1d6. So if you roll d20 with 2 difficulty, minus 2d6. And then it balances out. So you have 2 accuracy and 1 difficulty. Boom, 2 of them cancel out, and you get only 1 accuracy. Standard math. So again, why am I bringing this up with Death's Head? Well, again, the critical thing for Mark from Death, but then also some of its things you get from its licenses actually help out with accuracy. So it has one thing with its clamps. It can just walk up walls. All right, It can just clamp into the ground, and you no longer have penalties or difficulty from climbing. So it's really easy to get that perfect shot for Mark for Death. 
And then with that, they have Core Siphon. One shot, one kill. At the beginning of your turn, you can choose to give your first attack plus one accuracy. So you get a plus one D6 to your die roll, making it much easier to get that crit. However, on the flip side, any additional attack rolls you make that turn have one difficulty. So you get subtract one D6. And again, it's not that bad. Because Death said being artillery, most of its guns are going to be really big. And most really big guns have the loading property. So I'm going to want to fire this once, and then I'm going to want to reload it anyway with the rest of my turn. So, fuck it, I'll just keep giving myself plus one accuracy, because I'm not firing anything else. Like, I'm dedicating to just this one gun to blow my enemies out of the water. Which is some good stuff. Alright, and then it has the kinetic compensators. When you miss, should you ever miss with a ranged weapon attack, your next, very next range attack, whichever one it is, has plus one accuracy. And then there's a talent that adds to that, that says, hey, if you miss, get plus one accuracy. So with kinetic compensator from your mech, plus the talent, if you ever miss, which can happen, plus, plus two accuracy to your next hit. And if you're playing siege, certain siege weapons have inaccurate. They automatically start with some difficulty to their shot just because of the nature of the weapon. So your first shot might kind of be like, I'm just taking a guess here, bang. Okay, now I'm going to correct that with all these bonuses I suddenly get and actually hit here. And again, it's it's the flavor I love. You know, that, that recalculating thing you'll hear like when people talk in sci-fi and stuff like that, like in sci-fi movies and stuff, when there's a miss and someone's like, okay, I got to recalibrate or retargeting. Like, that's what I think of. You're starting to lay down the heat and it's like, hold up, I got to, you know, it's not just like, fuck, I missed. Like, I feel like a lot of times in D&D, unless the GM puts a lot of that flavor in there, which does happen, there's no real flavor in the book to a hit or a miss. It's like, it, most things, it's like, you missed, you miss. It's usually the bonuses come from hitting consecutively. So you want to be that great, powerful warrior. Here, hitting and missing, it, they're the same thing. Like, there are things that build up inaccuracy for a reason, flavor, flavorfully, well, with flavor, and there are things that build up accuracy with flavor. They go, because it just, I like it. Like, look, I'm, I'm going to gush here. I'm going to gush. It's going to sound a lot less structured than usual. I swear it's not. All right? I got everything in mind with what I'm doing. I got things written up. But I'm going to gush a little bit about this. So I like Death's Head because it definitely fulfills that kind of cool little thing of I'm either going to hit you and you're going to die. Or if I miss, I'm going to hit you even harder next time because that's just who I am. So I like the Death's Head. I really do. It's only number three, but I do really like Death's Head. I think it's a pretty cool mech with just the modifiers and bonuses it can give itself. Also, it has access to a railgun, which is, is a pretty powerful weapon that has armor piercing. So it just it ignores armor, which is great, and it has long range. So fuck yeah. Give me a railgun. Number two, nearing the end. Okay, nearing the end. So... I gush over Death's Head a little bit, because I do like me some artillery. So who would be better than that? Well, number two, I'm giving it to the IPSN Drake. Now, the photo alone, I just got to tell you about the photo. Think of, like, SWAT team with a minigun. It's this big, bulky mech with a giant shield the size of it. So it's just, they call it the Argonaut shield. And they have a minigun on another hand. That's just the look of it. Again, the mech can kind of look like how you want but well, that's what they go for what a Drake looks like. So immediately, I was very interested in this guy. And he's a he's a defender. He's big on, I'm standing in your way. A dense, heavily armored chassis, the standard IPSN drink. Fleet license includes a high-velocity, high-fragment assault cannon for suppressing and overwhelming targets and a heavy kinetic ablative barrier shield for defense. You're you're just that guy walking forward. You ever play like Rainbow Six or Call of Duty and you use the uh, the riot shield and they put the pistol next to it? Think about that, but instead of the pistol, you got that that minigun. That's the Drake. I think it's just it's so good. First off, he has some of the highest armor in the game. He has armor three to start. Now GMS, you can actually get a core bonus in the GMS that gives you additional armor, so you can even increase this further. So he has the highest base armor. He's a little bit slow. And his defenses are a little low because how clunky he is, but he can take punishment. He can take a lot of punishment. 
Also, he's resistant to most damage. Resistance to damage, heat, and burn from blast line and cone attack. So pretty much anything with an AoE effect, he takes half damage from. And those things, some of them are pretty powerful, like the Houtzer with a 2d6 can be pretty high. But a lot of them can be like lower damage, or there's some things that say, hey, by the way, I'm creating multiple blasts, so it might be lower damage, but I'm peppering the field. The Drake can just stand there and say, tis but a scratch. It's a beautiful, beautiful boy. He doesn't have a lot of system power, system points. His power is a little low on that end, but it doesn't matter because his core system, his unique bonus is Fortress. He's a defender. Keep that in mind. He's a defender meant to protect those around him. So with Fortress, when you activate it, you just turn into a fortified emplacement instead of like a mobile mech. So you may become immobilized. However, on top of that, when you brace, because you can actually take a reaction where you brace yourself, you take less damage, but then it slows you down your next turn. He can brace while in Fortress and essentially just get a normal turn next turn. He can still take a full action next turn instead of being limited in what he can do. He also drops full hard cover. So anyone else that is his size or smaller, and he's he's a good size for a mech, can just stand behind it and get cover. Also, let's just say you're out in the open when you deploy Fortress. He's now considered being in hard cover, which makes it harder to hit him. And lastly, what's really important about this, he has those resistances to damage, right? Any other allied mech who's using him as a fortress, like a cover when he has his protocol active, also gets the resistances. So those mechs that are a little bit weaker can just rally behind him and just get a fortified position to take out some enemies and then pick up and move when they deal enough damage. So you put that with some strikers or kind of like a striker artillery, drop a support back there, and the next thing you know, you have a pretty fortified position, even if you started with none, or it's, there wasn't a lot of cover, you're outnumbered, the Drake can easily give the team that edge. Because when he's in fortress mode, he's immobilized, yes, but he can still attack. He's still allowed to attack and still benefit from all his bonuses while spreading them out. It's a very, very awesome ability, and... When I play tanks, like in League of Legends, World of Warcraft, or any other like RPG, I love being that tank that does that, that just buffs his allies. He says, I am here to distract everyone, but I'm going to help everyone out at the same time. Kind of like a, almost like a paladin that just sends out AoE buffs. It's amazing. Now from there, his first thing you get, one of the first things you get if you get a license for the Drake is the Assault Cannon. And I love the Assault Cannon for one simple reason. It's a very basic weapon in terms of like damage and range and everything. It's a pretty simple weapon. However, what makes it stand out is on your turn as a quick action, you can spin up the weapon's barrels. And if you do that, it gains reliable three. And what that means is on the D6, when you roll the D6 for damage, if you roll less than a three, it's automatically a three. So you, you're going to roll three, four, five, or six automatically on the die when you attack with this cannon. The catch is, your mech is slowed. If I'm in my fortress, it doesn't fucking matter. You know, if I'm playing a mech that immobilizes itself to get additional bonuses, I will happily use the assault cannon to automatically deal average damage. You know, I'm talking support characters, artillery characters, and then a number of defenders that have those things. Like, I, will, I automatically slow myself down or something like that to gain extra defenses or extra accuracy. Fuck it, I might as well take the assault cannon because I'm my nature is to be slower anyway. Doesn't matter, I might as well just do average damage, so that's pretty cool. And the Argonaut Shield, the other unique thing it has from the very start, is just a really big ass shield, which doesn't do anything for you specifically. But what it does is you can use it to protect an adjacent character. So if someone's next to you and they're about to get hit, you can kind of like intervene with the shield. And they'll take half damage from all the incoming damage as long as they're next to you. Again, there's always a catch. The catch is you take 50% of that damage. So before armor and everything else comes to play, before any extra resistances or anything else like that, if your ally is about to take 10 points of damage, you will they will only take 5 because they have the resistance comes to play, and you'll take the other 5. But then armor and everything else comes into play after the split. So you take... 50% damage from the whole amount before modifiers. 
And then after that, split them off as a play. So again, if it's like you're about to take five damage for your ally, you start with armor three, you're only taking two damage. And then if you have resistances on top, like you see what I'm saying? It's just, the damage becomes non-existent to Drake. He just starts to ignore everything. And then again, it doesn't say anything about the fortress. The fortress says you're now immobilized. So I can just use my shield while in the fortress. And the next thing you know, this huge blast is coming down from the sky from an artillery shell about to wipe someone out that only has like eight health. And next thing you know, they take maybe two points of damage and you take one. It's it's a beauty. It is a beauty. And the other thing that can combo with him, a shield generator. It pops up a shield that as long as you're at least partially covered by the shield, all damage you're taking that you take is reduced by two. That counts for anyone in the shield, you and your allies. Now, the shield can only last so long. The generator itself has 10 HP, so it can get destroyed. And also, it automatically deactivates when it reduces 20 HP of damage. So essentially, 10 attacks. It deactivates after 10 attacks. That doesn't... Like, I don't care. Again, if that shell's coming down, I'm about to deal 20 damage, because I'm going to get I'm gonna get to something in a minute that can dish out some fucking damage. That, too makes a big difference, especially with everything else Drake can do to reduce the damage. He is a fucking beast, and I love him for it. Because not only does he make himself pretty hard to kill, once per mission with that fortress, everyone becomes incredibly hard to kill. And I, even though I like playing Siege and dealing, like, a lot of big damage, I'm a little worried taking on an enemy team that has a Drake for that reason, because I know Drake's laugh in the face of damage. They don't deal a lot of damage themselves, but they make sure that no one around them can die, and then they will dish out so much damage. Lastly on the Drake, their Leviathan Heavy Assault Cannon. It's a super heavy cannon. It's a real big boy. So it's kind of hard to use because it takes up a lot of room on your mech. However, it can be fired as a quick action. All of the super heavy weapons cannot be fired as a quick action, so it's easier to use it. On top of that, like the other cannon the Drake has, you can spin up the weapon's barrels. And again, you become slowed if you're spinning the barrels. However, you go from a d6 damage to a 4d6 plus 4 damage die. And it has reliable Five. So the range is very small, eight. You have to be pretty close to use it, but you are essentially rolling four dice that has a minimum. Five times six is 30. Minimum, right? No, sorry, 46, minimum five, 20, sorry. A minimum of 24 damage. Look at me doing math. A minimum of 24 damage at range eight, you will melt anything in front of you. It's an amazing gun for an amazing mech. Now how about the end? Alright. I talked about five with the Everest. Talked about number four with the Swallowtail. Talked about number three, Death's Head, and that actually you can get. And then I just gushed over the Drake's impossibility to, to die. Just it's complete invulnerabilities. So what the hell would be number one? Well, for any of you listening that have ever played Super Smash Bros. Brawl and went through the subspace emissary. Remember that end scene where Bowser and Ganondorf come out of subspace with that giant-ass cannon that can just shoot at anywhere on the planet and just create a subspace area there? And, of course, all the heroes are attacking the cannon to get in. Imagine if you could use that cannon. The Harrison Armory... Barbarossa. The Barbarossa chassis is a massive frame, built to carry the heaviest of weapons and equipment. Standing nearly 40 feet tall at its highest point, the Barbarossa is a slow, unsubtle beast of a mech, inspiring terror in enemies and comfort in allies. The weapons it can mount are capable of going toe-to-toe with just big-ass spaceships. That's not what they said, but English is hard. Indeed, due to its size and slow maneuverability, the Barbarossa is commonly employed in micro and zero-gravity engagements 
where mass is less of a factor. The Barbarossa is rated for all theaters and excels in ranged combat situations. The Barbarossa, as I said, is a fucking beast. Its stats are not amazing. All right, sensors 10. So it's kind of average low for its sensor range with tech stuff. Also, it sucks at tech attacks. It has a minus two to trying to do anything tech related, like hacking into other stuff like that. It has a speed of two. It can barely go anywhere. It can barely walk. And also, its defenses are pretty low. Evasion and E-defense of six. And keep in mind, evasion and E-defense is like your AC. So imagine having an AC six character. And then with that, it only has HP of 10. Armor two, so it's a little behind the drake. So overall, its stats are very bad. Honestly, like when you relate it to other mechs, they're pretty bad. So why the hell would I put this thing at... Number one, well, it's an artillery mech. So it might not have great stats because it doesn't belong anywhere near the front lines, even though it's this massive. It's a size three, and mechs, I think, go from size one to size five. And the Barbarossa, I think, is the only size three mech. There might be one other one. I don't think so, though. So this is fucking beast of a guy, but it's all about artillery. He has resistance to explosive damage, and... Most long-range weapons deal explosive damage, so he has that going for him. He's pretty good at tanking some artillery shots. Also, anything smaller than himself, as in most mechs, can't even move him. He cannot be knocked back, pushed, pulled, or be knocked prone by anything smaller than himself. And like I said, being a size 3, which is like right in the middle of the size chart, most things are smaller than you. So you just stand there, and first off... You can't move me. So I like that. I like the idea of just ignoring people trying to mess with you. The real love for me comes from its apocalypse rail. So I mentioned before that subspace emissary gun at the end of Super Smash Bros. Brawl. The apocalypse rail is kind of like that. But the apocalypse rail is an incredibly powerful ship-to-ship long-spool weapon system that requires target calibration. The rail is too large and unique to work with talents, take ammunition, or be modified in any way. So what that means, all those cool little things you can get to tweak, you know, your weapons, like I said, through talents and stuff like that, don't apply to the Apocalypse Rail. Granted, it doesn't need it. So, some weapons, the rail, the Apocalypse Rail being one of them, there's like two or three others, can have a countdown timer. So you take a D6 and you put it at four. At the start of each of your turns the weapon charges, so you tick down by one to a minimum of one, like a standard countdown. The catch is, if your mech moves, even involuntarily, even something pushes it, or becomes stunned or jammed, so its systems get fried, reset the charge to four. It stops charge. It starts, stops counting down. That's not a huge deal, because it can't be moved by things smaller than it. And the few things that are larger than it, I just talked to my friend who's running a game, there's a thing from the Nelson uh, mech that says it's a reaction thing that when you brace yourself, you can't be moved by anything size 5 or smaller. He's like, well, why would you need it? The Barbarossa is big enough. I'm like, because I want you to throw a building at me to try and move me. And I told him, I want to ensure that if I'm charging my apocalypse rail, I'm, it's going to fire. So I'm going to add this thing from the Nelson that just makes it where I can't be moved unless you're really big. Because mechs can team up. If, like, two or three mechs come together to try and grapple someone to move them, they add all their sizes together. So you can kind of do, like, a team grapple. So I want to ensure that my Barbarossa is not going anywhere. Okay, so that, that's the catch to the rail. Now, the rest of the rail can only be fired on your turn. So you can't do it as a reaction on anyone else's turn, which is fine. And if you fire the rail, it's the only thing you can do on your turn. You can't do anything else. And then when you fire it, reset the countdown and keep ticking down. So the Apocalypse Rail with its countdown. On a 4, when you first start charging it, it can't be fired, obviously. But on a 3, 2, and 1, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So if you fire the rail right away on a charge 3 the next turn, range of 20. And again, most weapons have a range of 10 or less. The exception being like Death's Head with some of its weaponry and some of the other mechs like the Monarch that also focuses on Tilly can push like range 15 before any additional modifiers. So already the Apocalypse Rail is outranging pretty much everything but a Houtzer Cannon. 
It has a blast two and a 2d6 explosive damage. It's the same thing as a Houser Cannon. The catch is, the blast cut lingers in the area of effect, providing soft cover until the end of your next turn, and objects in the area take 20 armor-piercing explosive damage, no attack required. So 20 AP damage to objects. Most structures and objects have 10 health max. So if your enemies are taking cover, like in a building or something, you can say, fuck you, and just blow it up. Now let's see what happens when you reach 1. When you hit 1, it has a range of 30. So at this point, even with talents, you are outranging everyone else. If you're charging to a 1, nothing can interfere with that. You are far away from combat that no one can touch you. It still has a blast too, which kind of sucks. I wish it was a bigger blast radius, but the damage kicks up to a 4d6. It's now doubled from a charge 3. So you're going to pretty much melt anyone that it hits. On top of that, anyone hit by the attack, they become shredded and stunned until the end of their next turn. So if you hit that Apocalypse Cannon, and all your allies stay just out of range of the Blast Zone, they can just charge it and clean up the mess for anyone who's still alive somehow. Also, the impact vaporizes the ground on impact, turning into difficult terrain. So those enemies that are stunned when they finally, like, get moving again, they're slowed in just this giant hole in the ground think of like you know you watch any anime that has a giant energy blast like akira did a few times dragon ball z stuff like that with just holes in the ground that's what this rail does now the area does provide soft cover for the rest of the scene which is cool and all but the problem is if you start your turn in there which you're slowed by being in there from difficult terrain or you even move in there for the first time you take four burn and like any other game that has burn damage that four burn, you take four damage every turn until you take an action to make a check to put the fires out. So no one wants to touch that crater. And then also, again, objects and terrain in that area are dealt 100 armor-piercing explosive damage. So for whatever reason, something has more than 10 HP. It's gone. This cannon melts it. So before I mention that whole example, like let's say the enemy's taking cover in a building you know the apocalypse rail could take care of that at a charge one the building's gone essentially you can just annihilate the whole building and it'll have to collapse because there's nothing on the ground anymore supporting it this rail melts everything and it's just a beautiful beautiful thing now the thing is the apocalypse rail is its core power which means you only get it once but you know what you only need to fire it once and i love that again it comes back like for the next mission you'll get it back but it's just for that mission you only get a one shot but you know what all you need is that one shot i i love it so much and what i like the catch is if you end a scene without actually firing the rail the core power is not expanded so let's say you do start charging it up and you somehow get pushed and the countdown stops it doesn't waste it. You just can reset the timer and try and fire it later, which I like. So you can just say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start charging the Apocalypse Rail, but still move around. And then just when the time comes, you can start counting down and firing it. And if you never fire it, then you keep it, which is cool. Also, actually, I'm reading the fine print here. After firing the rail, the charge resets to four. So you could fire it multiple times. Sorry, I lied. You can fire it multiple times as long as you stay feet planted. So I take back what I said before. The Apocalypse Rail is just fucking amazing. Nothing can stop it. It is very little that can stop the Apocalypse Rail from firing in combat. Now let's look at the other things Bar Barbarossa has, because it does have a few other things. Well, it has stabilizers. So outside the Apocalypse Rail, let's say you want to mess with some of the other siege weapons. Well, your mech is immobilized when the system is active from the siege stabilizers. However, you can increase the base range of all your ranged weapons by plus 5. So anything that had a 10 is now 15, 15 is 20s. So now you're just laying down the heat on top of using your pocket rail if you so choose. Also, the autoloader drone, which is very useful. Most siege weapons have a loading tag. You have to spend time to load it after you fire, so you're a little bit slower. Well, this, this drone you can deploy... Once per round, any one adjacent character can reload a weapon with the loading tag as a quick action. Just, you reload it. That's it. And the drone stays there for the entire battle or until it gets destroyed. So you can put that next to you and just keep 
firing those weapons without stopping because it's just quick action. I reload it, then I fire. Quick, fire, quick, fire. Great. I do like the flak launcher too. Some mechs, like I said, could fly. They could have systems to fly, which could spell doom for someone with an apocalypse rail. Well, you equip the flak launcher or any siege unit for that matter, or even like a support mech. This will also go, go great with support mechs that are close to the combat. With the flak launcher, a flying target in range 15 and line of sight of you must pass an agility save or immediately be forced to land. All right, it doesn't take fall damage, it has to land because there's just missiles flying up in the air. And they become slow and unable to fly until the end of its next turn. So like I said, as an artillery unit, flyers could spell doom for you as it flies over combat. But you can ground them and then someone can clean it up or you can take a few pot shots at them. As a support mech who's in combat, that keeps the enemy from getting a bird's eye view over you and possibly laying down some pain from above. Because you can just say, nope. And just pepper everything above you. It's a great little thing to have. And there's some other things that has an external ammo feed, which, again, can quicken your reload timing if you want to. You just take some heat damage, but eh, you can just load more things quicker. It's useful. And then, let's just say you don't want the Apocalypse Rail. Well, it has a Siege Cannon. You just pick up a Siege Cannon. It has two different modes. One that has the arcing, so it ignores cover and does good damage. Or one that's just a direct fire. All right, so you pick a target and also does some pretty good damage at range 20 or range 30 for the lob. And then if you have the stabilizers with it, it turns from range 30 to 35 for the siege mode, or from 20 to 25 on the direct fire mode. So again, the Barbarossa. Why do I love it? Well, its stats might be bad, considering how big it is, and considering the kind of weaponry it can hold. The thing is, its weapons require it to be nowhere near combat. And I like, because we were talking about it, me and my group were talking about it, and we were talking with our GM about it. If I'm this kind of guy that's in the back just laying down the heat, well, the human eye isn't the greatest, all right? And something that's like a range 30 could possibly be like miles wide. Like, that could be miles upon miles of distance, depending on how the grid's set up. So how the blades am I going to be able to hit shit? Well, we came up with this really, we had this idea. I mean, it's the future. You probably got comms. So, excuse me, talking to each other, just talk to each other through the comms. You know, they can say, hey, we found these targets, or you can have like a swallowtail paint the targets for you in-game. But at least out of game, you can just communicate to one another. You know, some might call that metagaming, but I say, hey, we would have comms in our mech so we could talk in character and people can paint the targets for me. And what's really fun as like kind of a, a flaw which I said, if our GM doesn't do this, I'd be greatly disappointed in him. Sometimes comms fail. So now I got this huge artillery unit in the back, and people are unable to tell me where the enemy is exactly, or to say if they're in the blast zone. Because friendly fire is a thing in this game. If an ally is caught in one of your attacks that does blast damage or a cone or any sort of AoE, they also get hit. Like there's Friendly fire is just always on in this game. So we like this idea of like, yeah, if our arms get fucked with for whatever reason, I need to either guess or just stop firing. So I like the flavor. I just like the flavor of the Barbarossa of long range people just painting things for me and saying who the biggest threat is. And I just say, got it. And next thing you know, missiles come out of the sky, heavy payloads happen. And then just the apocalypse rail points at someone and says, your life sucks and nukes them. It is, it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And though I have yet to play Lancer because everyone in the group is still either working on making their characters or reading the rules or whatever, like we're looking for a time to play, I already know what I'm going to do at a high level. I'm going to get the Barbarossa. And I will have that Apocalypse Rail on standby almost 24-7 and just saying, hey, who needs to be melted? Just point me in the right direction and I will end them. It is it's it's beautiful. It's a masterpiece of a mech. So that was my my top five. Alright. Out of all these mechs the game has, which it's a substantial list. It goes actually, you know what? Let me just give you a total count from their uh who's gonna call it? 
like the table of contents at the start. Let's see. For the mechs, you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay, about eight. I want to say it's eight from each group, and there's four companies. So eight times four is 32, plus the GMS Everest. 33 mechs to pick from, essentially. It's a good lineup of mechs, and for the top five, yeah. Tip my hat to the Everest at number five for just being the star of the game and being very versatile. Swallowtail has amazing ability to just stealth and stay hidden and just paint the field for its allies so everyone knows what's going down. Death's Head, as a smaller artillery piece, I like its ability to just get accuracy. That it can it can fix itself from previous failures and missed shots and just improve itself. Drake... It just doesn't care for damage. Even the Drake could probably stand up to a few shots from a Barbarossa or Death's Head at long range because of its damage reduction abilities. And then again, the Barbarossa. Even for its low stats, it is just a hunk of a machine that is capable of wielding the deadliest weapons this game has to offer and using them to their full ability. So it is just a beautiful piece of machinery. So again... I will have links to their website so you can check out the PDF for yourself and even back the project slash pre-order the rule book for when it comes out. Because again, there might be PDF for free, but it has errors in it. You know, there are things wrong with it and they're constantly making the changes. So I recommend it. If you like it, definitely pre-order it. You know, you support the group, the company, which is great. And you'll get a really nice hard copy print of the book when it comes out with everything nice and neat inside which is just beautiful so thank you all for listening today it's a beautiful saturday i'm going to not fully capitalize on that nice weather and do a couple other things with my life for now if you know someone who's jewish or you are jewish yourself well happy rosh hashanah because that is right around the corner monday i know for at least us school people monday and tuesday we have off so again if you're jewish happy rosh hashanah to you if you're not Jewish, but you are in school, well, enjoy your four-day weekend. I know I will. So until next time, everybody, again, thank you for listening, and I will catch you next time on Gaming Couch.